everyone, and welcome to Youth Positively's new show, Action to Avoid Opioid Addiction. My name is Paige Ewing, and I work at Prevention Resources as the multimedia specialist for positive youth. Prevention Resources is a nonprofit located in New Jersey that is dedicated to promoting health and wellness of individuals, families, and community through education, collaboration, advocacy, and treatment. I have with me Erin Cohen, Prevention Resources' new prevention director. Thanks, Paige. Again, I'm Erin Cohen, and I'm still working with the Positive Youth Initiative and as the Prevention Director at PR. So we are very excited to be hosting this brand new show on our platform. And really, the show is here to help educate and inform the public about the opioid epidemic, alternatives to opioids, and also educate the public on a new bill um, called the No Pain Act. And so we are working with Voices for Non-Opioid Choices to educate and advocate for healthy communities through these non-opioid choices. And so to help us understand the opioid epidemic a little bit more, and of course, the No Pain Act, we have with us from Voices for Non-Opioid Choices, Chris Fox. So welcome so much to the podcast, Chris. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So I think for just all of our listeners and our viewers out there, a really great place to start is about the opioid epidemic. We've obviously heard about it in the news, um, but let's talk a little bit about like, what is it? Why is this a problem? For sure. Well, to be very blunt, it's a problem because last year, 95,000 Americans died of a drug overdose. Of these, about 75% or 71,000 died of an opioid-related overdose. This marks a 30% increase in just one year's time and the biggest single-year increase in nearly two decades in the number of opioid-related overdose deaths. So like many other conditions, the COVID-19 pandemic has unfortunately had some repercussions and ramifications on um, public health in America, and perhaps most tellingly on the opioid addiction epidemic in this country. And unfortunately, despite a couple years of progress uh, in the middle of say uh, 2018, 2019, we are unfortunately facing all time highs and we're breaking all the wrong kind of records. So now more than ever is the time that we need to be paying attention to what we're doing and doing what we can to, to prevent opioid addiction where we can. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just in New Jersey, so last year in 2020, we had 3,046 people die of a suspected overdose just in New Jersey alone. And even this year, we're still seeing the ramifications of COVID. As of June 30th, we had 1,626 New Jersey residents who have died already. And so it's like we are, and the hard part is, is so many of these lives are young people. Um, but I think that's also something that's really interesting about the opioid epidemic is it's also old people um, who start got a prescription, maybe an opioid from a surgery, um, and then they became addicted to that um, prescription that were, they were given. Um, and already there have been 1,772,141 opioid prescriptions dispensed as of June 30th. That's enough prescription to give one out of every five New Jersey residents an opioid prescription. And that million is just New Jersey. And that's just like, it's a crazy stat to me. And I know that we don't talk that much about stats, but I think that you have to give, it's like some sort of uh, perception of just how much that is, how many that is. And so I think we just really need the alternatives in you know this conversation. Right. And I think one of the things too, to talk about when you talk about those numbers of people that were just lost in New Jersey or the 95,000 or 71,000 last year in the United States alone, 
you know, what always comes back to me here is about 9-11 and we lost 3000 people in 9-11 and everybody is so devastated for those folks. And we're losing the same number of people every year, just in New Jersey alone, or, you know, so many across the entire nation. And, you know, I know people, Chris, talk a lot about how it's a choice for people and, oh, they did this, but I don't think people realize with drug overdoses, especially opioid related, is that most of these folks, I think it's around 75%, correct me if I'm wrong, start out taking opioids from an injury. They hurt their back at work. They've gotten their wisdom teeth taken out. So most people who go on to use heroin have started by using prescription pain pills, correct? Yeah, that's right. Federal government data says that 80% of heroin users have reported initiating their opioid use via prescription painkillers, whether those were prescribed for themselves or they have been diverted through the community via leftover pills that are found in medicine cabinets from um, too many opioid pills perhaps being prescribed after one of those surgeries that you mentioned, Erin. And I think just it's really important to say in the beginning of this conversation that opioids as a prescription to help you know, manage pain after a surgery are absolutely, there is a time and a place for them. They exist for a reason, but there are also so many other alternatives that can help people with, um, pain, especially, you know, post-surgical pain. There are so many other options. And so that's why I'm really excited to have this conversation because I think, you know, a lot of times we hear, oh, somebody got their wisdom taken, teeth taken out and they just, you know, were given a few days worth of Percocet or, oh, they had this small outpatient surgery. Um, and they were given, you know, some other sort of opioid and, it's really cool to learn about how there are so many other treatments and therapies that people can have instead of an opioid, but also if slash when somebody needs that, that's still available. And so that's kind of where we get into this no pain act. Um, and Chris, you're kind of like the big expert on this act. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Of course. So the, first of all, the, the No Pain Act is an acronym. It stands for Non-Opioids Prevent Addiction in the Nation. Uh, and Paige, you've alluded to some of these statistics before, um, but there are millions of Americans that go on to long-term opioid use after a relatively routine surgery, whether that's wisdom teeth, uh, shoulder, knee, hip, one of the, a surgery of, along those lines. In fact, it's about 3.75 million Americans initiate long-term opioid use following these surgeries. And the fact of the matter is um, that for many of these, that initial prescription starts them down a path towards addiction that can ultimately, um, Aaron, as we talked about earlier, end up with heroin use or fentanyl use or other synthetic forms of opioids. So it's a very, very dangerous path, path that we set people on potentially. Now, again, Paige, you're absolutely correct. There is a time and a place in the clinical use for these opioid pills. And, and neither I nor voices is in any way, shape or form anti-opioid pills per se. What we are, however, is we are pro-patient choice and we are pro-giving families and caregivers and doctors the choice in how they want to help manage patients' pain, particularly after an acute pain incident, whether that's a surgery, an accident, a trauma, a sports injury, or something along those lines. The simple fact is right now that they don't have that choice and that we're making real medical decisions that have real repercussions and ramifications for patients, including but not limited to exposing patients to the opportunity potentially to develop an opioid use disorder. Um, and that for me um, is unacceptable. What we need to be doing is we need to be making available options and choices 
for these patients and for these providers to help them manage pain in the way that they want to manage their pain and in the most uh, responsible manner that we possibly can. And so what the No Pain Act would do, to be very clear, is it would provide these healthcare professionals with the opportunity to provide patients with non-opioid cho choices by removing the economic disincentives that currently exist to utilizing and prescribing opioid pills for acute pain patients. Mm -hmm. So I, essentially what I'm hearing you say is that a lot of doctors' hands are tied right now, that they are, the only option really is for them to prescribe opioids. That's right. And, you know, in many states like New Jersey, we're even tying um, healthcare professionals' hands further because we're putting additional limitations on the number of opioid pills that they're able to give to patients. And what we're doing at the same time is we're not giving patients and providers opportunities to other tools you know, in lieu of those opioid pills to help them manage their patient's pain. But you're absolutely right, Aaron. The choice isn't often up to the patient. It's certainly not up to the patient. It's definitely not up to the providers. Instead, it's oftentimes left up to um, administrators who are making these decisions based on short-term economics because, let's face it, generic opioid pills are exceptionally cheap. And when you're talking about non-opioids, you're talking about NSAIDs like Tylenol, acetaminophen, things like that, and nerve blocks and devices that are slightly more expensive, although not ex exorbitantly so, particularly when you consider the fact that using these, you don't have the ramifications of prescribing opioids and developing opioid adverse events or rehospitalizations and things like that. So these decisions, like I said, are being made in very short-term economic basis and not really based on the patient's wishes, their choices, or really um, based on what might be best for that patient or the family. And I think it's so funny that you talk about like the economics of it all. And like, you know, so many of these providers, insurance companies, even the government, they want to save money, which makes sense. You know, I totally understand that. Um, but we had done a project a few months ago um, that really kind of looked at how much is it costing um, these providers. And so for short-term chiropractic care, which was four months, it cost um, about $660. Um, but in a year of opioid use was about $1,008. And so we were like, okay, so short-term chiropractic care is more expensive than short-term opioid use, but we know that 29.9% of people, um, when they use opioids for 30 days, the likelihood of them continuing is, you know, almost this 30%. So it is in the long term more expensive to be prescribed these opioids to help manage a pain rather than using an alternative like chiropractic care or physical therapy. Um, and we also know that opioid misuse in the United States alone costs $78.5 billion a year. So it's like, you know, I think it's so funny when people talk about, oh, well, it's just cheaper to prescribe opioids. I'm like, is it really though? I don't think so. <laughs> right. Well, not to one-up you with numbers here, but, you know, in 2020, the federal government came out with data that showed that between 2015 and 2019, the federal government spent two and a half trillion dollars fighting the opioid use disorder epidemic in this country. So when we talk about short-term economics, you know, $2.5 trillion is a lot of money. It's a lot more money than we're spending even on caring for major public health diseases in, in this country like diabetes and obesity combined, frankly. And so when you think about the total cost that we're spending on fighting this opioid use disorder, it's substantial. And we know that there are opportunities that we can stem rates of opioid addiction in this country, including by focusing 
on opportunities to prevent opioid addiction where we can by making simple changes like making available non-opioid choices to patients. Because we know that given the choice, parents, caregivers, and families and individuals would choose the non-opioids over the opioids more often than not. So I know Paige was talking about chiropractic care. Can you talk to us a little bit about what some of those other alternatives are? Sure. So I I tend to bucket them into two different categories. There are the pharmacologic and the non-pharmacologic. And so when we talk about the non-pharmacologic, non-opioids, we are talking, Paige, about things like physical therapy, chiropractic services, acupuncture, all those things that have been demonstrated to be effective in helping patients deal with their pain. When we're talking about pharmacologic interventions, we're talking about things like nerve blocks. And if anybody has ever had oral surgery before, you know what nerve block is, right? Because they stick that needle in your gums mm-hmm. and uh, it feels like it's 12 inches long, even though it's not. And then right. it tells you that uh, you can't drink anything hot or cold for the next hour or so. I, and I, I know I never listen. I drink the water and I end up drooling it all over myself because the, the, it has provided very specific regional pain relief there. Well, they can make those for, use those as anybody who's ever had an accident or had stitches, they, they can make those for surgical purposes as well and give that directed pain relief exactly to the surgical site. There are other things like IV forms of NSAIDs like acetaminophen and ibuprofen that have been demonstrated also to provide that same pain relief um, while also allowing patients to recover more quickly, avoiding unnecessary risk of developing an opioid use disorder, as well as avoid the challenges of um, facing opioid adverse events um, that happen sometimes when we prescribe opioids, things like patients getting constipated, patients getting that opioid fog that they talk about and falling and having to go back from the hospital. So there are a number of reasons why um, we think that non-opioids are preferable to opioids in many cases. Again, not to say that there's anything wrong um, necessarily with a prescription opioid pill. What we are fearful of is how these prescription opioid pills can um, result in individuals developing a substance use disorder. And that's what we're trying to protect against. And I think it's so interesting because when I started looking into this project, um, you know, I started looking into the pharmacological alternatives. Um, and I saw the IV Tylenol and my mom actually works at an outpatient surgery center. And I remember her bringing that up. So they used to prescribe like three days of a Percocet to help manage your pain after your outpatient surgery. And then they started using the IV Tylenol and she's like, it's amazing. My patients are reporting less pain, quicker recovery times, And all they have to take, you know, it's usually 12 hours, 24 hours later that they're like, oh, I'm feeling a little bit of discomfort. And they just take an over-the-counter pain medication to help manage it. And they're not prescribing opioids there anymore because of how effective this is, at least for the surgeries that they're doing and the surgeries and their patients that they're taking care of. Um, And that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And now I'm hearing of it again, you know, with this project. So I think it's really cool that we are starting to see outpatient surgery centers and places really recognize the benefits of these alternatives um, to help people with their post-surgical pain. Yeah. And the opportunities really, Uh, you know, I I think that there is tremendous opportunity that together we can work to stem rates of opioid use disorder in this country. And um, Aaron, as you talked about at the outset here, um, for many, it starts with a prescription for opioid pills. And the fact of the matter is that it doesn't have to be the case, that by increasing utilization of these non-opioids, we know that we can prevent some of those 3.75 million Americans from going on to long-term opioid use. And that's what the No Pain Act would do. And that's what we at Voices for Non-Opioid Choices are really working night and day to try to get accomplished. And so we know that uh, we need help and we need to do it together. And that's why we're here 
I'm talking to you uh, and we'll talk to anybody that will listen, hospitals, patients, caregivers, teachers, community leaders, whomever about the opportunity before us, because we know that by working together, we can make a dent in this crisis and that we can really improve the delivery of healthcare in this country too. And that's a win-win for us. Mm -hmm. And this is really, you know, when we talk about combating the opioid crisis, this is not something that one bill alone is going to fix or one community effort. I think this has to be a really, really comprehensive approach. And so that's why, you know, kind of in prevention, we talk about like little P's and big P's, big policies being, you know, acts like this and little P's being things like our drug disposal boxes that we have in our community and, you know, giving out to Tara bags um, to our community members. And so I'm really excited for this show specifically that we're going to have doctors, both on the, you know, national surgical, but also our local Hunterdon County doctors. We're going to have legislators on, we're going to have community members. We're going to have people who can really look at this crisis on all the different, you know, levels. And then hopefully we'll be making some really great, not only community level change, but national change, which will help push, you know, us in a direction of having healthy communities, which is really the ultimate goal. That's right. That's right. And Paige, you're exactly right. That this, this legislation is not a silver bullet solution. It's not going to, if we enact it, it's not just going to all of a sudden there will not be an opioid use disorder crisis in this country, but we talk about making meaningful change. And this legislation is, a, is an opportunity to make meaningful change and meaningfully improve the delivery of healthcare and meaningfully reduce rates of opioid addiction that start after surgery. And that's what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I think when we talk to people in our community, a lot of what we really try to do is you were talking about the medicine cabinets before Chris and how people, especially here where we live in Hunterdon County, a lot of people have health insurance. So Mm -hmm. there are medicine cabinets full of opioids. And what we have really done over the past few years is with putting all these safe disposal boxes in and educating people, people are getting rid of the medicine in their medicine cabinets. So it hopes that with continued education, there's going to be less and less sitting in those medicine cabinets for people to be able to acquire, you know, or take when they don't need to be taking them. That's right. And, you know, when we talk about education, you know, Paige, I like how you said, you know, big P, little P. When I talk about education, I talk about big P, little E education. When we talk about education, we're talking about across the board education. Mm-hmm. That here. It's not just the parents. It's not just the patients. It's not just the caregivers. It's the healthcare professionals as well. We need to do better educating the healthcare professionals about the opportunities out there um, to help treat patients without the aids of opioid pills necessarily. I understand why um, many providers and why opioids are the standard of care for pain patients in this country. It's often how healthcare professionals were taught and trained to treat patients' pain. And so we need to do, in, in, in a sense, we need to re-educate and retrain some of the healthcare workforce so that they know what the opportunities are and they know how effective these non-opioid strategies can be. So when we talk about education, I agree wholeheartedly, sign me up, but let's talk to and educate everybody that we need to. Let's talk to the educators, let's talk to the patients, let's talk to the families, let's talk to the parents, and let's talk to the healthcare professionals who are on the front lines here. Mm -hmm. And I remember you saying, I don't even know, remember when it was, but you were saying that this is just adding more tools to the toolbox. It's not taking any away. Um, And I think that if we're going to have you know, the healthcare that Americans should have, we should only ever be adding to that toolbox, giving them loads of options to be able to take care of their patients. 
That's right. And, and I want to be very clear on this point. And so I'm going to speak a little bit slowly. So, so hope <laughs> people will understand and, and hear it. Um, the No Pain Act would do nothing, nothing to take away or make it harder to obtain legally prescribed opioid pills, either at the patient level or on the provider le level. There's nothing in the legislation that says that thou shalt not prescribe opioids to patients or that thou shalt only prescribe X number of opioid pills to patients. That's not what the legislation does. The legislation simply arms healthcare professionals with more tools, more options, and more ways to help treat their patients with pain. To the extent that those patients want it and those providers want to use them, right now their hands are tied for very real um, outdated payment reasons that make these out of reach for them. And all we're trying to do is we're trying to make non-opioid solutions as accessible as opioid-based pain relief and put everything on a level playing field because we know in doing so, more people will choose the non-opioid solution. And that in doing so, we can, again, make a difference in um, reducing rates of opioid addiction in the country. And that's why I think we're all so excited for this project, because I think that's something that everyone can agree on. <laughs> you I know, so. I, I mean, even just looking at who was sponsoring this bill, it's very bipartisan. Um, we have people on both sides of the aisles because I think, you know, a lot of people um, can agree. Um, and this is me speaking personally, that we want people to be healthy and we want them to be able to have access to good health care, um, whatever that looks like. And um, whatever methods that that can be, um, I think personally is a benefit. I, I would hope so. And, and, you know, I have said all along that I don't think fighting opioid use disorder in this country is a partisan issue. I think it's something that Democrats, Republicans, members of the House, members of the Senate, community leaders, I would hope would all get on board for. Listen, over the past several years, Congress has spent hundreds of billions of dollars fighting the opioid use disorder epidemic in this country. Um, what the No Pain Act is an opportunity to take a slightly different approach um, on this, which is the first time really to focus upstream on those opportunities to prevent opioid addiction rather than fighting downstream um, in terms of providing patients access to substance use disorder treatment, first responder support, or training of the healthcare workforce for those um, battling an addiction. So for us, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say we understand, and there are a lot of really worthwhile causes and um, resources and pieces of legislation um, that we think are important. But I think they're also missing an opportunity here to focus upstream on those opportunities to prevent addiction. And that's what we're trying to do. I love that you talk about upstream because we use that in our prevention efforts all the time now. We always say we need to, instead of trying to fix the problem, we need to look at a way to prevent that problem. But you're right, Chris, it is an issue that has affected every single American in this mm -hmm. country. Every single person I feel like that I talk to at this point has been affected by this opioid epidemic one way or another. They had a friend that, you know, has overdosed, a sibling, and you're talking, it's, it's normal people like you and me, you know, people always have this picture of somebody who is a drug user, or, you know, we don't use the word addict anymore, but somebody, they think that it's like the dark alley and this and that. And the reality of it is that's not what this is. And what has happened is it's just everyday Americans, just like the three of us talking who have been affected by this opioid epidemic because of a minor surgery or an injury. So I like the idea of people having choices and being able to take control of their, you know, medical decisions, you know, and not being tied and to not being able to do something because insurance won't cover it or something like that. 
That's right. You know, addiction impacts tens of millions of Americans every year, both those who are fighting a current addiction and those who are in recovery. And so what I like to say is that addiction oftentimes hides in plain sight. It is found in everyday Americans, Aaron, as you say, in our, um, you know, in our teachers, in our workforce, in our colleagues and in our neighbors. And so what we need to be doing is really working together so that we're giving all the support and all the resources that these individuals need so that we can set them up for success. And for us, part of setting them up for success makes um, is for, for us, part of that answer includes minimizing their risk of exposure to opioids where we can and when we can, including by um, providing them access to non-opioid options after a surgery. And that's something that I didn't even think about until you just said it. You know, we have people who are in recovery who have come onto this podcast and we've have, you know, our close friends. And now, you know, here is this thing that's going to be able to help them with alternatives rather than having to get prescribed an opioid when maybe they had an opioid, have an opioid use disorder. And so it's like, it's opening the door for people in recovery to get better pain management if they need it as well. And I didn't even think about that. Um, that's so, right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> You know, we speak to patients and families and, and um, even individuals who are in recovery and, and who, frankly, will put off needed medical care because they're afraid of being exposed to an opioid after that. There is one um, person I speak to out of New Mexico who had so shoulder surgery and literally built, bit down on a belt because he himself was in recovery and he didn't want to be exposed to uh, opioids for fear of relapsing. And so it happens. And, and you know, the, the sad reality is um, that it doesn't need to happen, that there are other alternatives out there that are just as, if not more effective at treating pain than opioids that also offer enormous additional benefits above and beyond, um, you know, what can be offered by prescription opioid pills. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when we talk about this, it's so easy to get passionate about it, especially for all of us, because I think we see, we see the ramifications of it. So for our listeners and for our viewers, if you feel passionately about the topics that we've spoken about, we encourage you to use things like the drug disposal boxes, ask your provider about the alternatives. If you're experiencing pain, if you're going into a surgery, talk about how you're going to manage that post-operative pain. And then of course, even just educating your state legislature members. Um, about things um, that are coming along the lines that you may or may not agree on. And so for more information about the No Pain Act, please visit nonopioidchoices.org. Um, that is the website for Voices for Non-Opioid Choices. And you can see all of their information, um, their media, things like that on their website. And then of course, for more information about opioids and our initiative on our side, um, please visit our website at njprevent.com. And we just want to say thank you for listening in and we'll see you next time for more youth positively speaking about actions to avoid opioid addiction.